because they'd only been there for three or four weeks. And yet he left a functioning church and they knew these things. So we're kind of trying to play catch up because many of us have been believers for 40, 50 years and still barely understand the stuff that those people understand stood after three weeks. So just a review today of what we talked about last week. <clears throat> we did talk about faith, about baptism and communion as they fit into the New Testament church teaching. Uh, today I want to talk about faith and baptism because they are linked concepts. We see a lot of people in the book of Acts that believed and were baptized. Um, so we need to talk about what that's about and why those two ideas are linked. <clears throat> They've been linked from the beginning of the church age, but they're frequently misunderstood, and because of that, they're frequently mistaught. I've known of people that absolutely believed if you weren't water baptized, you couldn't be saved. Uh, sorry, that's not true at all. In fact, I'm not sorry. I'm really glad that's not true at all. See, the thief on the cross didn't have the opportunity to go get baptized. You know, he's hanging up there dying, being executed for his crimes. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I'm glad. But we need to connect those two concepts pretty carefully and scripturally to clear up any questions we still have. So the question, the bottom line question for most of us is, is salvation by grace through faith, period, or is it by grace through faith plus something? And that's where the, the rub is, because we so many times think we have to add something to what God's done. We add something to what Jesus did at the cross. When we go all the way back to Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6, it states that Abraham believed God and that God counted his faith as righteousness. And it was a very simple situation. Abraham was concerned about, okay, yeah, I'm serving you, and yeah, I'm happy to serve you, but what do I get out of it? And God says, well, you're going to have a huge number of offspring. He says, how do I know? He says, well, step outside here. Take a look. See if you can count the stars. As well as you can count the stars, that's how you'll be able to count your offspring. That's how numerous they'll be. And it says that Abraham believes God, and God counted that belief as righteousness. He attributed he credited Abraham with righteousness on the basis of faith. Now that passage is quoted in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul reiterates that idea that, look, if you're concerned about how this works, remember that Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he went on to give other scriptures from the Psalms, saying, blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. In other words, he won't count sin to your record anymore. He sees you as completely righteous in Christ, not because of baptism, because of faith, because of stepping into the ark of God's faith, of God's salvation by faith. Now, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that's the verse we always quote regarding how we're saved. It says that by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we see that, and we say, okay, that's how it works then. We're saved by faith, uh, by grace, through faith. <clears throat> but see, that, that idea of salvation by faith goes all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, the people who placed their faith in the shed blood at, at the Passover lamb, the initial first Passover lamb, uh, remember what they did. They took that blood and caught it in a basin and dipped a bundle of hyssop in it. It's a, it's a weedy shrub that lives over there. 
They dipped it in and they smacked it on the lintel and the two doorposts. What did I just do? That was 1,500 years before the crucifixion. It was 1,300 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. See, that, that concept of salvation by faith in the blood of Jesus has been there since the very beginning. Adam and Eve. Adam placed his faith in God's promise of a coming Savior, the, the seed of the woman. He didn't know anything more about it except this mysterious seed of the woman would undo what Satan had just accomplished. And on the basis of his faith, it says God clothed the two of them in the skin of an animal that he killed. That was the first blood sacrifice and it was specifically looking forward to Jesus. That's why when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was such a big deal. <clears throat> That's John 1.29. They still had problems with unbelief, even as believers. Numbers 14.11 recalls God's complaint about Israel. He says, by uh, sorry, I skipped a line here. He said that despite his numerous signs and his proofs and his provision for them all the way through the desert and all the, uh, what do you call them, plagues that he would dropped on Egypt, getting them out of there, in spite of that, he says, they still don't believe me. Because he had just, in Numbers chapter 14, he had just commanded them to go into the promised land. And they said, nope, nope, there's giants in there. We aren't going. He says, what is this? I've been feeding you people for 40 years. Well, at that time it wasn't 40 years, it was just two years. But he says, I took you through the desert, I gave you the water, I gave you the food, I, I knocked out the Egyptians, I split the Red Sea so you walked through on dry ground, and you still don't believe me? They believed him enough to walk through those, but when it came time to go into the land, they rebelled, they wanted to go back to Egypt. So believers can rebel against God too. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. That's what the gospel of Christ is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word for power there is the word dunamis. Uh, it means his ability. Uh, there's another word used, that's exousia, that means his authority. Jesus gave that when he gave the Great Commission. He says, all authority is given to me. It says all power, but the word is exousia. It means all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, you go, because I have the authority to send you. That's the Great Commission. But in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, the ability of God to save them that believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the only thing labeled as being God's power to salvation in the whole Bible, is believing the gospel. <clears throat> Romans 3.25 makes it more specific. It says that Jesus has been set forth as a propitiation. That means the satisfaction of God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Propitiation means satisfaction, but it's a legal term, a legal satisfaction of his righteousness and his holiness. And it specifically says that, that he was set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood, Romans 3.25. There is no doubt about what, what it's talking about. <clears throat> so in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the Jews asked Jesus, so what must we do to work the works of God? Because they still thought you had to earn it. 
And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Can't get much more clear that faith is the issue. So in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the Philippian jailer begged Paul and Silas saying, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. <clears throat> so someone might point out, well, yeah, but you know, all those people that believe, they got baptized right afterwards. Yeah, most of them did. Okay, we need to think about why. As believers, we've been given two ordinances, water baptism and the Lord's table. We explain the Lord's table every time we have communion, uh, so I'm not going to spend any time there today. But I do want to point out that both baptism and the Lord's table or communion are commemorative. They're looking back to something that happened. The Lord's table is looking back to the crucifixion and recognizing he died for me. It's publicly stating, yes, he died for me. At some time in the past, I placed my hands on that sacrifice by faith and claimed his blood as the full payment for my sins. That's my only hope. That's what we're saying when we take communion. We're commemorating the fact that Jesus died for me. By the way, if you want to still think about that Passover lamb, they didn't just watch the blood go on the doorposts and the lintels, lintel and the two doorposts. They ate the lamb. Each had to take part in it personally. You receive Jesus personally by faith. He either died for your sins personally or it's not doing you any good. It's not enough to say, well, yeah, he died for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, that's true. But did he die for your sins? Are you a sinner needing his grace? Is his blood enough to pay for your sins? That's what communion's about. <clears throat> There's two kinds of baptism, though, in the Scripture. One of them is absolutely necessary for salvation, but it has nothing to do with water. And the other one has everything to do with water, and it has no effect on your salvation whatsoever. So we need to talk about the difference. There's a real baptism and a commemorative baptism. The real baptism is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where it says, By one spirit we've all been baptized or dipped, immersed into the body of Christ. That's how you became a believer. The, the day you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you became a member of the body of Christ. Whether you knew it or not, that's, that's true. Um, <clears throat> And in that whole passage in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's specifically talking about how in the human body, there's all different parts of the body and all of them have their function. I sometimes wonder if I might be a nostril here. Uh, but the, the fact is, whatever I am, I didn't have any choice about where I was placed in the body of Christ. My nostril hairs didn't have any choice about it. They could have said, no, I want to be a neuron. Well, sorry, that's rather neurotic of you. You can't. You, you get your assignment from God. And, and we saw that back in the book of Numbers, that the different tribes were assigned different jobs. They were laid out. If the tabernacle was here, then these three tribes were camped on that side. Those three tribes were camped on that side. These three over here, these three over here. The Levites were split up, and they each had jobs to do. They didn't get to choose them. They didn't get to say, hey, I'd like to... No, you don't get to. They, they, got, they had to go where God sent them. So when a person is a newborn believer, they have no idea what their gifts might be. They have no idea where God has assigned them. 
I didn't ever figure I was going to be a pastor. Honest. I wasn't looking for that. Turned out that's what God wanted me to do. So the real baptism is the one where the Holy Spirit placed you into the body of Christ. And that's absolutely necessary for salvation. It's what happens, what God does as a result of your faith, instantly, immediately, permanently. But that verse in the middle is talking about how you're placed into the body of Christ. In verse 13, it's no longer talking about church gifts, it's talking about being a member. And when we talk about church membership, that's the only kind of membership God recognizes. You become a member of the body of Christ at large, which covers everything from the day of Pentecost till the rapture. And every member of the body of Christ is expected to find a local assembly of like-minded believers, attach themselves to that body of believers, and function as a member. That's what we do. Every member of the body of Christ functions as a member of the body of Christ. That's how bodies work. <clears throat> Some churches have a membership role where, you know, it's like a country club. If you paid your dues, we don't have anything like that. Some churches want you to be rebaptized into their church. No, we don't have that either. The people that are being baptized today has nothing to do with joining our church. It is commemorating the fact that each of them has been placed into the body of Christ by faith, by the Holy Spirit, and they're making a public statement to that effect. It has nothing to do with joining a church. There's even churches that literally sit you down before a board of elders and examine you and vet you and decide whether you're worthy to be part of their organization. Frankly, I find that pretty repugnant. If there's an organization that thinks that Jesus' blood was not enough to make me worthy to be part of their organization, then I don't belong there. That's all. Because Jesus said that I'm worthy to stand before God and call him Father today. And if that's not enough, then probably I don't belong in that organization. That's, they're, they're after something else. I don't know what it is, but it's not that. So baptism by the Holy Spirit is the real baptism. It happened the moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior. Water baptism is only a picture of that, looking back and saying, I've been placed into Christ. By the way, in Romans chapter 6, it says that when you were baptized into the, into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, that's what it's talking about there in Romans 6. He says you were baptized into his death, that God says you died with Jesus. It further says you were baptized into his burial and his resurrection and his ascension and his new life. All those things are in Romans 6, that that real baptism, not water baptism, the real baptism, when it happened, placed you into all those things. God completely associates you with Jesus. So why use that word? Why use the word immerse? Why use the word dip? Because that is what baptize means. Because baptism always has to do with identification. Think back to Jesus being baptized. He didn't have any sins to confess. He wasn't repenting of something. He was being identified with the message that John the Baptist was preaching. John was preaching the coming kingdom, the promised kingdom of, of heaven, where Jesus would rule here on earth for a thousand years. And Jesus was identifying himself with that because he's the promised king. He didn't need baptism. He chose baptism to publicly identify himself with that message. We choose baptism to publicly identify ourselves with everything that Jesus stands for. The, they still use the word bapto, 
to when they're dyeing cloth, when they shove a piece of freshly made fabric into a pot of dye, it comes out fully identified with that pot of dye, whatever color you shoved it into. That's what color that, that cloth's going to be now. And nobody has any trouble, unless you're colorblind, nobody has any trouble identifying which pot of dye it got dipped in. Okay, if I dunk a cookie in coffee, it's no longer a dry little cookie. It's a cookie that's soaked in coffee. Uh, or maybe if you don't like coffee, you dip it in something else. But once we've dipped something in something, then it's identified with the something that it was dipped in. When Jesus dipped the sop into the cup and gave it to Judas, it was the word bapto. It means dip, and it was translated dip in that particular passage. But all through the Bible, it's, trans it's not translated. It's transliterated. The Greek word baptizo has just moved over into English, and we call it baptize. Why? Well, because when the first English books, English Bibles were being translated uh, in England, the Church of England was in control of everything, and they were practicing sprinkling. So if you'd said John the Dipper came dipping, and these people got dipped in water, uh, they never could have gone to press. They would have been probably burned at the stake. Who knows? But so they just moved the Greek word over, baptize, and let everybody make of it what they would. So we're stuck with having to reteach. What does baptize mean? It means dip. That is what it means. But it's for the purpose of identification. That these have chosen to publicly identify themselves with Christ. Identify themselves as those who have been placed into the body of Christ. <clears throat> we practice water baptism for the same reason we practice communion. It's because we're told to. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go and disciple. It says teach. The word is disciple. All nations make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He, he just commanded them to baptize. So that goes to us, too. It's a chain, what do you call that? A chain reaction, I think they call it in chemistry. Uh, and that's what we do, too. Do we have to completely understand it? No. No. And even if we don't completely understand everything that goes into communion and baptism, we do practice it. We practice it as, a, as an act of obedience as well as an act of faith and as a public testimony. I think I told you last week that when, when I was in Bible school, the way they did their baptisms, they, there was a, a park in town that had a huge lake, a very shallow lake. It, you could walk way, way, way out, like 50 yards out, and you'd only be hip deep. Um, but it was a very flat bottom lake. And so 200 students are standing on the shore in this public park, and you know, strangers, people walking through the park, walking over to see what's going on, and uh, craning their necks. And one student after another give their testimony of how they were born again, and walk out to this staff member, this big strong guy is dead now, but a big powerful man that was standing out in the waist deep water. And they could see that he asked them a few questions confirming their faith and he'd baptize them. They'd come back, another person would give their testimony. And there might have been a dozen or more t testimonies in a row that everybody got to hear. It was good confirmation for us. I was a fairly new believer. I needed to hear that kind of stuff. And it was good for anybody else listening, they got to hear the testimonies of believers explaining why they wanted to be baptized. I don't have a lake today. We have a tank here on the floor. 
it'll have to do. <clears throat> Even though we may not really be sure how it works as a testimony, we do practice water baptism by immersion. We don't require it of anyone. We offer it to anyone that, when it's requested. <clears throat> People sometimes protest that 1 Peter 3.21 clearly says, baptism now saves us. Well, in that context, Peter was comparing the ark of the water involved with the ark separated the people in the ark from all the world, from the sin around them permanently. And both were there where they were by choice. The people outside the ark were there by choice. The people inside the ark were there by choice. They believed and they entered the ark. We believed, we entered into Christ. We were placed into the body of Christ. That's what separates you from the world. The water was the judgment that destroyed the world that was outside the ark. The item of their salvation was the ark. And he says, in like manner, baptism now saves us. Is he talking about water baptism? No, he's talking about the real baptism. When Jesus, when the Holy Spirit placed you into the body of Christ, you were permanently separated from the world. That's what separated you from the world. That baptism saves you. Yes, not water baptism. So anybody that says that, they need to go back and read the context and see what he was talking about when he said that. People just take a piece of that verse and think that that answers everything. So that verse in Peter is in reference to the baptism of the believer by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. The same is true in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, when it says you've been baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection, and so forth. And it's interesting to read in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17, how the Apostle Paul felt about baptism. First, he pointed out in verses 10 through 16 that it had been causing division amongst the believers because they were already starting to fight over who baptized who and you know, my baptism was better than yours because I was baptized by Paul and I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Jesus and they're already starting to form, uh, I'll say denominations. That's about as close as I can say it. They were dividing over who got baptized by whom and who somebody's favorite teacher was. And he says, don't do that. There's one body of Christ. And then he said, what's really interesting, verses 17, uh, and following, he says, I thank God that Christ sent me, that I baptized none of you except for Stephanus and uh, see the household of so-and-so and maybe so-and-so. He says, if there was anybody else, I forgot. Must not be terribly important to him. He doesn't remember who he baptized, and he says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize very many. Because verse 17 says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the preaching of the cross be made of none effect that the key was the faith. The key was placing your trust in Jesus' shed blood at the cross. The baptism was a public testimony after the fact. had nothing to do with your salvation. It doesn't require any special clothing or any ritual. Uh, if you're, you're seeing my baptismal uniform here. It's uh, Dickie's shirt and pants, and the first time I've ever worn sneakers to church. Um, and as luck would have it, I stepped in somebody's chewing gum out in the parking lot and came in with a foot full of gravel. So I was outside trying to scrape it off my foot when everybody showed up. It doesn't require any special clothing or any kind of ritual. It requires no oath-taking or any other such thing. You're not promising anything. You're making a public statement, period. 
that Jesus died for me. I've placed my faith in him. I have been placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're saying. And the scripture does show that upon public confession of faith in Jesus and his finished work at the cross, any believer is fully qualified for water baptism as a step of obedience and a testimony of the new birth. Now, a classic example would be the Ethiopian eunuch. Last week I said it was Acts chapter 6. I was wrong. It was Acts chapter 8. I told you my memory wasn't that good. But it says that he believed the gospel and he asked to be baptized. He says, there's water. Can't I be baptized? He just heard the gospel. He just believed. He says, there's water. Can't I be baptized? And Philip told him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And they both went down to the water and Philip baptized them. There was no ritual. There was no waiting period and no baptismal certificate. We're not giving out those today either. What's important is that you, you recognize Jesus as your Savior. Therefore, on the authority of God's word, we're going to proceed. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you teach our hearts and minds and use this service to strengthen our commitment to you, raise us up to walk with you and to work with you. Now, I'm going to ask each of the people being baptized to give their own testimonies. Uh, I'll ask, would you prefer